Hey, what's up, everybody? This episode of Greatest Show on Dirt is brought to you by Hood Hat. I have a ton of hats. I spend way too much money on baseball stuff in general, but hats are one of my favorite things to buy. And I've got so many in my podcast studio. I look like a hoarder. Like, I think I'm going to be on some sort of Discovery Channel episode of Hoarders because I've bought so many hats where they would walk into my room and say, Well, sir, we have a problem. <laughs> But listen, out of all the hats that I've bought and put on my big old noggin, hood hats are probably my favorite. They're made out of 100% merino wool. The color on them absolutely pops. And they keep their shape really well. And they just look damn good. I've got, listen, here's some of the hats that I have. I've got a, uh, don't tell my wife I've spent too much. (laughs) I've got a Cincinnati Riverfront hat that's just this awesome, like, bright color of red that just screams Cincinnati Reds 1990 World Series. Eric Davis, the Nasty Boys. It is phenomenal. I love it, dude. You're talking big red machine the whole nine. But then I've got also this, uh, San Diego Jack Murphy hat that just reminds me of those good Padres days. Tony Gwynn, 394, the chase for 400, those sweet brown uniforms. Ken Caminiti, Lamar Hoyt when he was a Padre, Fred McGriff, Gary Sheffield. Like, I love their hats. Their motto is never leave it behind, right? And their hats, they don't have the team names on them, but they have like Riverfront Stadium on them and Jack Murphy Stadium on them. And so when you get these hats, you're just filled with this nostalgic feeling of like watching baseball when you were a kid, and I love it, right? That's what my podcast is about is baseball nostalgia because it fills me with so much love to look back on those baseball years of like my dad, you know, teaching me how to play baseball, working his ass off all day, you know, working construction, building houses, coming home, playing ball with me till it got dark. So baseball nostalgia to me is hard work, and it's a lot of good memories. And, you know, I take sort of those memories and – you know, I sort of like, you know, use them in my current life. You know, I'm married now and I've got a, you know, a 13 month old daughter who's just a sweetheart. So baseball nostalgia is a very powerful thing to me, not just related to the game, but sort of life in general, not to get really mushy on you. But I really love a hood hat, you know, like I probably will never get another sponsor on the show because like I don't I just need enough money to buy Ham's beer. Right. But the only reason really why I partnered with Max. He's the guy that runs Hood Hat. He's a sweetheart of a guy. I think he's like 41. So he's like in the same nostalgic vein we are. Is his hats are just phenomenal, right? They are made in New York. So they're made in the USA, which is super cool. I love supporting a small business that makes really good hats that have a nostalgic theme to them because I think baseball nostalgia is a very powerful thing. So check them out. You can go to their website at hoodhat.com. Or find them on Instagram at Hood Hat USA. But that is all, guys. So thanks for uh, thanks for listening to that. Check them out, and let's get to the show. Hey, what's up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studios. I am your host, Quentin. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. It's been a while. I'm excited to get on the mic. Spring is here or right around the corner, depending on where you live at. I think if you're still in Minnesota, you're probably getting some snow. 
uh, lucky enough where I'm at, we had some 70 degree days last week, which I was really pumped about. You know, it's just the, the feeling of spring. I love it. Yeah, I think like, it reminds me of being a kid, right? I think that's why I love spring so much, because when you were a kid and spring would come around, it was the greatest thing in the world, right? Like it was just time to pretty much just get on the bike and stay out all night. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mom's yelling at you. Hey, come home when the streetlights come on. But you know which streetlight comes on last, so you just sort of have that as your alibi. <laughs> when, she, when your parents are like, where the hell were you? It's like, listen, this is where I was. Like, the lamp didn't come on, you know? And they're like, oh, okay, like, I know that one. But they also know your scheme pretty good, <laughs> you know? So, geez, man, that was always a struggle, right? Like, coming home and wanting to stay out past dark. Like, I think that was one of the best things ever, being a kid, is just staying out after dark, you know? Like... Just, I mean, it was just as simple as just wanting to ride our bikes around all night long, right? Like we would play, we would play baseball, you know, all day long, all day long. Start off in the morning, wake up. I remember I used to set my alarm at about five, in between five and 5.30 a.m. every day. So I could wake up and hang out with my dad before work because he would always watch Sports Center. And those were the days where Sports Center was only half hour episodes, and we would just watch them all loop on loop all morning. So he would have his coffee, and I would just wake up and you know make like some s'mores pop tarts. You know I'd put them in the microwave, not in the toaster. <laughs> and people make fun of me to this day. They say well, you cook your pop tarts in the microwave, and I'm like, listen, I'm the pop tart king of the South. I know how to make a pop tart. You know what I mean? Like you don't ask you know, Paula Dean or fucking pioneer woman, how she makes her food, you know, just enjoy my pop tart that I've made you, <laughs> you know, that's what I do when my guests come over. I'm saying, would you like a delicious pop tart? <laughs> it's they're very good. And then I would just, you know, so that's how the day started. And I remember like I had this digital alarm clock. That's like how they used to work back in the day where they had like the big red letters. And I would meticulously like OCD set that alarm because I did not want to miss early morning sports center because it was all about like, hey, who's in the chase for 400? Who's in the chase for Roger Maris's home run records? It was like you had to watch sports center just to know what was going on. And then on Mondays, you would have like the plays of the week, which was so damn good. And I just loved him. And I would just wake up early in the morning like I knew my dad was there. And then, you know, he would have already read the newspaper because he was he was a grinder. Right? He always worked construction. So he was up at like 4.30 making coffee. So I'll wake up a little bit after him. And then he would get done with the sports section. So I would like check out the box scores and stuff like that because you have to know what, you know, the averages are, all the players. So have that accompanying your sports center, which is so wild, like how times have changed. Like now, I don't watch a lot of television really. And when I do, I guess I don't watch it for the same reasons, but like that was just a good time. Like, you know, sitting about two foot in front of the, uh, the Magnavox console TV, eating some pop tarts and with the box score in front of you, just figuring out what's going on. And then as soon as the sun comes up, like just, you know, I would start calling my buddies. I mean, we all did this, right. And it was such a good time. And I think this is why, like, I still love spring so much to this day. I think it's the best time of the year. It's, it's, all of a sudden, when the birds start chirping and the sun's out a little later, later, and then we get daylight savings time, so the sun stays out longer, it's like something comes over me still to this day. And that's just always what I think about is like being a kid, you know, and then as soon as the sun, sun comes up, you got to call your buddies, you know, you have to call them on the landline, right? There's no cell phones. 
And one Christmas, my mom got me a landline phone for my room, which I was super excited about. So I had the landline and she printed off these business cards that had my name and phone number on it so I could hand it out to my friends. And I remembered it wasn't anything fancy. It was just this green corded phone, but it did have caller ID on it, which I was super excited about. Like, do you remember when you got caller ID and people would call? And you would like leave the supper table and all gather around the caller ID machine to see who was calling and just sit in amazement. Like, holy shit, what is this thing, man? And so my TV in my room had, I mean, not my TV, my phone in my room had caller ID on it. And so I could always see who's calling like I was important, right? Like, who's going to call me besides my buddy Josh, right? Like, nobody's going to call me, right? But it had three-way calling on it, too. So I remember, like, setting up the three-way and being so excited and, like, trying to figure out, like, how the hell does this three-way calling thing work, you know? And then so you dial a buddy, then get someone else dialed up, and then you go over your plans because you're going to, like, play baseball all day and then maybe, like, go to the mall on Friday night, you know, get some Sbarro pizza and go to the arcade. (laughs) That was good-ass times, man. And just all summer long, dude. And then, yeah, I mean, riding to the ball fields, like that, I like that was such an experience. Like I never thought it was gonna end. Like crazy enough, I don't know how I remember this, but I remember my buddy's dad telling me one time. He told me, and then you know my buddy, he just said, "Listen, like enjoy it while it lasts, because it goes away so fast." And I remember him telling me that, and just thinking that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I was like, I was like, this is never going to end. Like, I'm 10 years old. Like, why are you telling me this, right? But, and I always remembered that. And then now I'm sitting here at 37 years old, enjoying spring, having this conversation with you saying, wow, the time really did fly by, you know? And what, what happened every single day is just sort of like, it's gone, you know? But I think about it in these terms under this situation, I still find a lot of joy in it. And just riding to the ballpark, right? So I had a uh, I had a GT performer that I bought used off one of my brother's buddies. It had front and back pegs and a gyro so you could do bar spins on it. So it was so badass. And it had like the splatter paint color, like typical of like late 80s, early 90s. Like you were styling. You cruise that thing on with like a starter jacket or something and some Oakleys. Or in my case, it was the fake Oakleys that I got at the county fair because I couldn't afford real Oakleys. I only made $100 a month on my paper route. I wasn't about to spend a whole month's paycheck on Oakleys. Like, no way, dude. But it was just, yeah, get on the bike, you know, round up all your buddies, stop by everybody's house because you couldn't text after you left the house. You couldn't text and just be like, hey, I'm here, you know, so you had to ride your bike to your friend's houses. And if they weren't there, then you just had to sort of keep riding on. You know, it's all about tracking people down. And then once you have everybody tracked down, I remember I would always I had this Easton bat bag that I would put over my shoulder. And then we would just ride to Cheney's, which was this local butcher shop. And there's like where we would always start our day. So we would get all of our goods we had to get. So I would always lean towards like an IBC root beer, the ground up beef jerky. So it looked like I had a dip. I love to chew that stuff. It was really good. And then like the Andy Caps hot fries, like I had to have those bastards. And plus like some of the sugar suckers that are like pink. I don't know what you call them. 
and then we would just make our way to the park. We used to sometimes we would make a trek to Pyramid Park, which was a little bit of a further drive, but they had more legit fields. But where we played at most of the time was a little sandlot by the school that I went to, and it just had this old rusted backstop too, which is still there. So anytime I go home, I'll always like take my nieces, or in this case now that I have a daughter, like to the school and play or whatever, and then I'll just like take a peek at that backstop and just like you know just. Just remember how good, you know, those times were, whatever. Man, and that was just it, though. Like, once you get to the ball fields, like, on a summer day, like, we would just play outside all day long. Like, we never came in. And part of that reason was because, like, I couldn't go in because my mom wouldn't let me. <laughs> Listen, my mom was so obsessive about her house being clean, and especially when the summer came around, she was just like, what the hell am I going to do with these kids? And I guess one day she was like, well, I could just lock them out of the house because they want to play outside anyway. And because we didn't do like, I was not a TV guy. Like I played video games, but a lot of that was like at night and like on the weekends because my mom would always take us to this place called Family Video and they had wood paneled walls in there and you would have to walk up this level to get to the video game section. And really during the weekends, and not even every weekend we would go and, you know, rent video games or whatever. And I and that was just on the weekends. And that was like a two-day rental or whatever. So, like, I, w- I never really outside of early morning sports center. And then if I hung out with my grandpa to watch, like, a Cubs game because you had – because we had, like, the WGN and then TBS. So, you could watch the Cubs game at, like – I don't know if it was, like, noon or 2 and then you catch the Braves game after supper at 7.05. Like, you could do that. But as big of a baseball fan as I am growing up, like, I didn't really watch that much baseball because I was always out and about. So my mom, we would leave the house in the summertime, and she would lock the fucking doors, and we couldn't get back in. You know, so there was none of that, like, mom yelling at us to either stay in or stay out. Like, it wasn't a fucking option. Like, if you were out... Like, it's game over, pal. You're not coming in. And she didn't care, man. She was ruthless. If we would come back to the house, I mean, in southern Illinois, it get pretty hot in the summer times, you know? And so we would come back home and be like, Mom, I'm thirsty. I need water. And she would be like, just get it out of the hose. <laughs> Could you imagine today if, like, I would never tell my daughter to get a drink out of the hose. Like, I don't know if that makes me not as, like, as good of a parent as my parents were, but I think maybe it makes me a better parent than what they were. Like, I, and if you just saw like a mom yelling at their kids, like get a drink outside and the doors to the house are locked and it's well over a hundred outside. Like, I think somebody might be calling child and family services and saying, listen, there's this mom that locked her kids out of her house and she's making them drink hose water. <laughs> but like, I was just like, yeah, absolutely. So then like to this day, like I'll drink water out of a hose or out of like, those like an old rusted spigot like do you remember those things that had like we had them at the ball fields that um I played literally yeah and they had the spigots where you had to lift up on the handle real hard and you just dunk your head under them and get a drink of water like if I see one of those or like I'll still drink out of a water hose and my wife will usually be like what the hell are you doing and I'm like I don't know I'm thirsty like this is how I live this is how I grew up drinking water right And also, like, yeah, I pee in the front yard, and I go outside in my boxers all the time. And part of that is because if you came home at the end of a day and you were really dirty 
or if it had rained and you were muddy, my mom would make us strip off on the back porch, not in the utility room inside the back porch, right? Or some people call it a mud room. We call it the utility room because that's where the washer and dryer and hot water heater were. And that's where we kept like all of our dirty baseball shit. But no, we would hit the back porch outside. And then it's just like, <laughs> it's just like an incoming inmate. When you like unlock the doors, they have to strip down naked and then you come inside. So we would come home at the end of the day and my mom would come out. She'd be the same hose. She told us to drink water out of now became our enemy because she was going to spray us clean with it. But not before she made us trip down to our underwear because you were not coming in that house. Listen, she had solid white carpet because it was the 80s. I don't know what mom does that when you have three kids. But we were not coming in that house the way we were. So it was stripped down, spray us with the hose, and then we would come in the house, dry off. And then at that point, we were free to, you know, do whatever we wanted. Like, I didn't even need a shower at that point because I had just been completely hose down <laughs> and you know because she knew she had locked us out all day and she's like well these kids gotta be disgusting you know outside of sliding a bologna sandwich through the like there was a kitchen window that was sort of up high and it had it opened with the little like turny thing or whatever and so it would open up and she would slide us like bologna and ham sandwiches out there. No water because you had the hose. And then usually like a fudge round or an oatmeal cream pie. So she would never unlock the back door because that was for the inmates to come in <laughs> when the day was over. And it was like, all right, get down to your neck and spray off, you know. So like I've been put through the ringer. So that's why like when I go outside in my boxers at first, you know, my wife would be like, why are you doing that? Like, aren't you embarrassed? And I'm like, no, like, what do you mean? Am I embarrassed? This is life. <laughs> like, this is how we do it. And then, you know, with the peeing outside thing, well, you just weren't allowed to come in. So you better find a tree or a bush and get down to it, man. But listen, uh, lunchtimes, dude, like this is my, my buddy, Eric. So during like the summer, sometimes, sometimes we would go to his house and play. He had um, and it's a Nintendo 64 where you had GoldenEye and Mario Kart for one summer, man. That summer we played more video games than most, but I was a little older at that point. I'm going to say I was, I could have been 13 when that came out and we were playing nonstop. Those two games, dude, that summer when those two games came out was so legit. And his mom, she was a, uh, she was a lunch lady at the junior high. So she always had in the freezer the rectangle pizzas. She had so many rectangle pizzas. She could have powered us all through Y2K if the world had actually shut down. And so all summer long, we would get rectangle pizzas too, which was the shit. I remember getting those rectangle pizzas. And it's just chilling with your buddies, playing video games, playing ball, stopping in the house to somebody's mom who would let you in the house and eating rectangle pizzas. Damn, man. Those rectangle pizzas were so good. Like school lunches, I don't know what they're like now. I guess I'll find out when my daughter goes. But like I was never the kid that would pack your lunch. Like I was not a lunch packing kid. It was all about like whatever's for school lunch. Hamburger day, like you imagine, like if you ate lunch early enough, there were some days at 11 a.m. you were already eating a hamburger and chocolate milk. <laughs> but I loved school hamburgers. I would always pay the extra because a, a white milk will cost you 25 cents, but the chocolate milk will cost you 35 cents. 
So I'd always have a little bit of extra money because I would get the chocolate milk and then a fruit roll up. But hamburger day was legit. Obviously, rectangle pizza day. Pizza day was the best day. But also, when they had breakfast for lunch day, damn, man. Breakfast for lunch day was the best ever. Still to this day, like, I like breakfast for supper. Like, switch those meals around, and I love it, dude. And what were some other good days? Chicken nugget day was pretty good. Um... That's all I remember, burgers, chicken nuggets, and pizza, which is pretty much what I eat now. <laughs> so there's not a lot that's changed in the 30 years since I've been in grade school, but that's what it is either way, man. But I just, it's all of those things encompassed that, like, I love spring and summer, man. When those seasons changed, you know. It was the best times, and still to this day, like when it does, I'm reminded of all of those good times of just being a kid in the summer, playing ball all day, riding your bikes all damn day, like not coming inside, riding your bikes everywhere, and you know, when the streetlights come on, come home, but then when mom would be like, you can stay out and ride past dark, like being out past dark was the shit, man. Like, that was the best feeling. It was just fun. Like, we weren't doing anything, you know? We weren't we weren't working nine-to-fives like we are now. We weren't stuck in our head on our phones or, you know, all the shit that, you know, goes on today. It was just a, uh, it was a different experience, you know, where we didn't have anything, but we had fun, you know? Yeah, we used to build uh, ramps in the front yard. Like, we well, not the front yard, in the street. So, like, we would play in the street all day, too, which I don't think kids do a lot of anymore. And I don't want this to turn into, like, this badgering thing of, like, oh, kids don't do that anymore. But that's, you know, when spring and summer rolls around, like, those are the moments I'm reminded of, right? Of, like, hey, you know, finding old scrap wood that my dad had and building ramps in the road and then, you know, ramping on them and they will break and you'd fall on your face and just be all bloody or whatever and still not be able to go into the house because mom has the door unlocked. I mean, mom has the door locked, so you're bleeding and you can't go inside. So it's like, listen, you either get better or you die. Like, I don't know what else to say, dude. And just like, those were just the best times. And I guess what I'm saying with the technology thing, because like I said, I'm not, I don't ever like to really like badger or complain about like the two different generations or whatever, because if I, if I was a kid now, yeah, I would definitely, things would be different for me, you know, and whatever kids do today, like, I, you know, I don't care, but I know that like I have a daughter and I have a wife and it's me, right? We have our family. And when spring and summer rolls around, it sort of reminds me to do things a little different, you know, and take a step back because especially with all this work from home stuff, you know, we get so busy. We're in front of our computers all day at home. And then when the evening comes, we sort of, you know, still fall into that trap of like checking our social media, this or that or the other. And when spring and summer rolls around like this, and I think about times, you know, that I had, it helps me to just sort of remember to, hey, like stop for a second, slow down, drop all this electronic shit, and let's just get outside you know, it was a couple of weeks ago, I put a big blanket in the front yard and me, my wife and my daughter just went out there and laid on the blanket and it was a sunny, like 70 degree evening and my daughter's like picking grass and playing in the dirt and there's not a phone, there's not a TV, there's not a laptop, there's not shit. It was just the smell of the grass because spring's coming 
And my daughter's just having fun with what's in front of her, you know, sort of like what we did with kids. You know, we would just go to the baseball field. We had a bat and a ball and our bikes. And that was enough to get us through two and a half months of summer and be completely locked out of the house. Like we didn't need to be entertained because we had fun with what was there. And spreading out that blanket, it was like, listen, I got an old quilt and I got me, my wife and my daughter and it's nice out. So let's just go outside. And my daughter's just exploring and it's to watch her do that, like digging in the grass and she'd put a little bit of grass in her mouth and eat it. And I was just like, yeah, she'll figure it out, you know? And that's just what I think so beautiful about spring and summer when we were kids is sort of just this discovery process of, Hey, let's get on our bike. Let's grab our baseball stuff. Let's stop by the butcher shop to get some snacks and let's just see what the day brings, you know? And I'm sort of motivated by that now having a family to, you know, sort of do more things like that when spring and summer come around. And it was, it was a, it was just a peaceful experience, you know, to just sit out there on that blanket and just not have anything, you know? And so as spring or summer rolls around, like you should definitely try to do that. Like if you're listening to this podcast, you know, just, you know, wherever you're at, like if there's still snow on the ground where you're at, I'm sorry. (laughs) But if you're in a position to where like, you know, the, the weather is going to get a little warmer where you're at, like drop everything for a second. Like you owe it to yourself. I know it's such a hard thing to do and I'm by no means like an expert in living or anything like that, but it's, it was a great feeling to just stop, drop everything and just be outside. Don't take anything with you and just have some damn fun. And Dude, that's like, those are just sort of all the reasons why I love spring so much. And to think about times like that, which is sort of always like a goal of, you know, turning on this mic every couple of weeks and talking is to look back at like all like this nostalgia that we have in our lives and help it to positively influence like our current life, you know, with, you know, I've always talked on this podcast about how my dad works so hard all damn day. They want to play ball with me in the evening, you know, and I think at times like that, and it reminds me to be a hard worker. And when, you know, I think about springtime and summertime when I was a kid, it reminds me to, hey, slow down, drop everything. Like you don't have to have a phone with you all the time or, you know, I don't have to have my computer or the TV doesn't always have to be on. Like just go outside with what you got and have some fun and just be together, man. And I, I love it, you know. So if you can find time to do that this summer as the weather starts to warm up a little bit, like try to because and it, it's hard to do like even here. Like I'm on the mic saying these words and it's still such a hard thing to do to just shut off. Like it's not easy because you get in this groove and you have to get stuff done and to think about getting stuff done and then to think about stopping for a second, you're like, oh, I'm going to get behind. Like I don't have time for that, but like just you do like, and that's what I keep having to tell myself is I have time. I just need to stop and enjoy it. Like I'm not a you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, I'm literally not saving lives. Everything will be fine, you know? So if you get a chance in the summer, like this year, like go outside, just go outside and have fun, you know? Like I joined a, a softball league in my neighborhood and we had our first practice this weekend, which was this past Sunday. But on Saturday, me and a couple of my buddies went out and hit some balls too. So I ordered a tee off Amazon and was just hammering baseballs off of it all day Saturday. But then we hustled up some softballs, and we hit some softballs on it too. And so all day Saturday and all day Sunday, I was just outside hitting baseballs, playing catch, 
fielding pop-ups and stuff. And it was just so damn fun. And so, you know, when you think about getting outside a little more this summer, you know, if, if you should search if there are any, you know, like adult softball or baseball leagues in your area because they're so damn fun. Like we had our first practice on Sunday and it was the best time I had in so long. Like all of those spring memories that I just talked about, it brought so many of them back. Like I had the spot on, I had my spot on the bench with my old Rawlings uh, glove and two Franklin batting gloves I got like three summers ago. And I've got like my bat leaning up against the fence, just like I was in Little League. And then I come out because like I'm in the hole. So like I got my bat, I'm strapping on my gloves. And then I got on deck for like my first at bat because we did a scrimmage with another team on Sunday. And by this point, my body's just ravaged and exhausted because I'd played all day Saturday. <laughs> like, I am thinking in my head, like, I can't imagine we stayed outside as kids all day long because I did it once and I'm exhausted. And I went out and I was on deck all of a sudden. And, like, I'm taking practice swings. And it was so damn fun. So I'm telling you, if you can find an adult softball, slow-pitch softball is probably the easiest to play if you're like me because I'm 37, so I haven't played anything competitively in well over 20 years, but you could jump into slow pitch softball and just have some damn fun with it. And it was a blast. dude. So like, and I was, listen to me, I was nervous. I had butterflies. So I get to the field on Sunday and I, we're going to go around the horn and this is before the scrimmage. So we're just going to go around the horn and just take BP. So we got someone pitching, lobbing them up there, someone hitting. And I was like, I want to go to the outfield. So I immediately go to center field, right? I, I race there because I can't get there quick enough. And I'm, I was so nervous. I had so many butterflies in my stomach just from this, this softball practice. It was crazy. And it was the best feeling. And the first ball I caught, I ran to it so hard. I thought like my hip was going to fall out of place on the way or something. Like I just didn't know. Like I was running so fast. I didn't know if I'd be able to stop. And I didn't know if it was healthy for my body, you know? Like you ever see like those Viagra commercials that are like, call your doctor to make sure it's safe enough to have sex, right? As I'm running to this ball, I'm like, I don't know if it's safe for me to run this fast. <laughs> and if so, I don't know how to stop once I catch this ball. And I caught it and some people yelled, good catch. And I was like, wow, like this was a great feeling. Like all of that love for baseball just sort of amplified up. And I could feel it in the moment. Like it's a wonderful thing to think nostalgically about the game, but I sort of am in that spot where, you know, given my age, I'm like, I sort of, know now like what I wish I knew then and it's like getting into this league I felt like I could just sort of relive it and do it again you know because I never played in college I was never gonna get signed like there was I was never ever gonna play to where I could make a living off of it so for me playing the game was always just about having fun and you know, leading up to this podcast that I'm recording right now, I was like, listen, I could, I'm going to talk about playing baseball and how my body aches and I'll just make a big fucking joke out of it. But as I thought about it more and I got a few days past the weekend, like all I could think about was just love and how much I loved playing baseball and, you know, playing softball, slow pitch softball with these people that I didn't even know felt so good. So find a league, dude. If you're, if you're listening to this podcast, like, find a league, and even if you suck, 
like even if you're out of shape, like you don't look how you used to look and you haven't hit a ball in forever, like you can do it and you can go out and you can have fun. And if you're like me, if you're the person type of person like me that sort of always chases that nostalgia because it feels good, it's a whole nother level to actually get back on the field again. And it sounds silly, right? Like I'm here talking very sentimentally about how I loved being on a field this weekend and playing slow pitch softball with people. But just the feeling of being on deck, like a guy brought some big league chew and I put a big wad of it in my cheek and I was like, fuck yeah, dude, this is the best. And then when I was on deck and think, oh my God, though, when I got to the plate, I was a nervous wreck. I swung so hard at the first pitch. It was like I forgot what I was even doing. Like I didn't know how to swing. I didn't know my batting stance. And then I swung at the pitch and it was like a weak pop-up, but thank goodness it was foul. But what happened was I hit the ball and it was a pop-up and it was sort of teetering, right? It was in no man's land and I didn't know if it was going to be fair or foul. So I'm watching it. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, holy shit, I have to run. <laughs> like, I'm playing a baseball game right now. So I take off. I take a wide turnaround first. I'm heading to second. And everybody's looking at me like, why are you running so fast? Don't pull a hamstring, <laughs> you know, because we're all old guys playing baseball. And I was just so excited. Like, I forgot to run. And then when I did, I just fucking bolted out of the box. Because I was just so excited. And then the second swing I took, I popped out. And then the next at bat, I popped out again because it's just so hard to do. But it was still fun. Like, I went 0 for 2 and had two shitty cuts. And I was like, this is great. But then my third at bat, I got a sack fly. There was a guy on third, and I hit one deep to left field. And I got a run. So my official box score for our scrimmage on Sunday was I was 0 for 2 with a sack fly RBI. And I was like, hell yeah, that feels so good. And so, like, I'm just going to, like, take my stats all year long for this softball league in a notebook. Like, I remember playing that Tiger Electronics baseball game, and I would always take stats in a notebook because games like that, you can't, it doesn't save stats. It's a Tiger game. You know those Tiger baseball games? I've posted a few pictures of them on my Instagram. They're the best. I have one in my office. Yeah, I got one right here, Tiger Electronic Baseball. It just basically has a run button and a batter button, and it takes two double A's. Like, these Tiger Electronics games are the shit. And so, that's what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to take my stats all season long, and I'm just so excited. But I was out all weekend. So, all day Saturday, like, I just took BP with uh, my brother-in-law and his brother. And then Sunday, we got to the field about an hour early to, to get to practice for practice because we're so out of rhythm, but... Jesus, man, like it, it we, we practice at the fields that are by my house. So I drove a car there. But when I got back after practice, I was like, listen, next practice, like I want to ride my bike. I'm going to order a bike. Like I want to get a bike so I can ride my bike to baseball practice so I can ride my bike to the ball fields just like a kid. And then I feel like next time I have to bring a cooler of soda, like filled with Barg's root beer, Orange Crush, Mellow Yellow, like all the good stuff to drink, man. Those are some good times, dude. But anyway, like I have to listen. So I have a segment that I want to talk about some old school baseball players, right? I was walking really just this morning. Like, so I was, I was doing a jog with my dog because I want to get in shape for baseball season. So, you know, like I'm out of breath all the time, pretty much partially because I ate. Listen to this shit. I bought 
six boxes of Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies for myself, right? My wife bought like some shortbread or whatever cookies she eats, and she hasn't even opened them yet. But it was uh, this is like sometime last week, I bought six boxes of Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies. I ate a box a day for all six days. Listen, I was a heavy breathing dude. <laughs> it was so good. I love a Thin Mint cookie. It's like I'm a chain smoker, but with Thin Mint cookies. You know what I mean? And now, like, I'm out of Thin Mint cookies. So the neighborhood that we live in, it has a community Facebook page. So I posted on the Facebook page. I was like, listen, I bought si- I, I did a humble brag, too, in my question. I said, listen, I bought six boxes of Girl Scout cookies last week, and I already ate them all. So that it's like my humble brag because I wanted to brag about how much I could eat, you know. And because I eat so much, I'm out of breath all the time. So that's why I was running with my dog today. So, but I said, does anyone know where I can get extra Girl Scout cookies? And somebody sent me a link that said I could order them online from their daughter, who's a Girl Scout. And I'm like, dude, if I can order Girl Scout cookies online, like we're about to have a whole problem because I love to order baseball cards online because it's just so easy. It's like one touch ordering. If you give me one touch ordering with Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies, it's game over, man. But so that's why it's shit like that. You know, I live off sugar, right? I'll eat. Yeah. Like I said earlier, hamburgers, chicken nuggets, pizza, cookies, right? That's my diet. So I'm like, well, I need to run with my dog. And so me and Brody, my black lab, right? We go out, shout out to big bro. We go, we go for a jog today. And I got to thinking about like who my favorite baseball player was. Cause I was watching the 93 all-star game and I've been doing like a heavy binge of old all-star games. So awesome. Go to YouTube and do it and just watch like old MLB all-star games. You can get like some good ass matchups. I uploaded the other day on Instagram. It was Dave Parker versus, I don't know who it was. It was a Dave Parker at bat. I forgot who he was facing. And there's also, what at bats did I learn here? Let me get, I'm gonna get my phone out real quick. Oh shoot. From the 1980 all-star game, there's a really good J.R. Richard versus Reggie Jackson at bat. This is when J.R. Richard was in his prime, but he was only like a month away or weeks away from having the stroke that ended his career. And then I've got an at-bat with Pete Rose versus Jack Morris in the 81 All-Star game. I've got um, Cal Ripken Jr. versus somebody, and Tony Gwynn guns him down. Oh, Cal Ripken Jr. versus Tom Glavin, and Tony Gwynn guns him down from the wall at second, trying to stretch that double. And then the Dave Parker at bat is from the 1980 All-Star game. It's Dave Parker versus Mike Norris, who was that young stud in Oakland who threw like, geez, what was it in 1979? Mike Norris was a fucking badass. In 1979, Mike Norris, he pitched for the Oakland A's, threw like 284 innings and like 26 complete games. He was lights out and he threw a screwball. Not a lot. I don't think anybody throws a screwball now, but like screwball delivery guys that I could think of are like Carl Hubble. That's the guy that struck out all those Yankee or all those studs in an all-star game in like 19, what, 50 something. Who did Carl Hubble in a six in a row, Carl Hubble, who threw a knuckleball, struck out like Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Babe Ruth, I don't know what else, like four or five guys in a row that were just like absolute studs, and he struck every single one of them out. And, But I guess what I'm getting at is these All-Star games have been like such a blast to watch or whatever, and 
So I was so I got to thinking about it. and then when I saw the one in ninety three with Barry Bonds, I, sometimes I forget what I'm talking about when I'm talking. But before I go on, go watch old All Star games. Or you can go to my Instagram, Greatest Show on Dirt, and I've uploaded some clips. You get just the baddest ass matchups during All Star games. So good. Nolan Ryan starts a couple of those All Star games too. So if you want to see Nolan Ryan face like some big names, like there's an at bat. From one year, I think with Nolan Ryan still a California Angel, it's him versus Mike Schmidt, which is a really good at bat. But yeah, like so Nolan and Mike Schmidt from that's a oh, I don't know what year that all-star game would be. A 70-something all-star game, I think. And then Dave Parker versus Mike Norris, good at bat from the 1980 All-Star game. And then Tom Glavin versus Cal Ripken, where Tony Gwynn guns him out. Tony Gwynn had an arm, gunned him out from the track. And yeah. And then the J.R. Richard versus Reggie Jackson at bat in the 80 All-Star game as well. Oh, that was that? Yeah, that was the 80 All-Star game. And then the Mike Norris, Dave Parker at bat was from the 81 All-Star game. But just go to my Instagram and check them out, dude, and watch old All-Star games. You will have a blast with them because you just get the baddest ass matchups. But now, okay, now what I'm getting at is I was thinking – I watched the 93 All-Star game, and Barry Bonds got booed when he made a catch, right? And I've always thought that Barry Bonds was my favorite baseball player, but somehow, like, in watching that play, I was like, is Barry Bonds still my favorite baseball player? Because I've always loved players that either, like, if I'm watching anything live, like, I like a real good underdog, but I also like people that sort of, like, push boundaries. Like, Barry Bonds was an asshole when he played. And, like, T.O., Terrell Owens, like, I always liked T.O., because he just always pushed boundaries. Like, athletes that are sort of cocky and edgy that aren't who you want them to be, like your Dave Parkers. And they, you know, those guys have like an edge about him. You're like, oh shit, like this guy's doing things that other guys don't do. Like Dave Parker would talk a big game. He had the dangly earring, you know, and he's just like this outspoken dude, right? I wasn't alive when Dave Parker was in his prime, you know, doing those big things, but I've read about it a lot, you know? And so you could sort of compare Dave Parker to like a Barry Bonds. But I think Barry Bonds was definitely way more of an asshole. But, you know, Barry Bonds pushed boundaries. You know, he wasn't like the player that you wanted him to be personality-wise. He was edgy, right? And he knew he was good, and he would let you know that he was good. And, but, you know, doing this podcast, I've taken the time to research a lot of other players. And as I get older, I value different things. So I saw that play, and for some reason, it just I, I thought to myself, I said, is Barry Bonds my favorite baseball player? So I was like, I don't know. You know, I've read so many cool things about so many baseball players that I didn't know that much about, right? Like a guy like Don Baylor. Like Don Baylor is a name that doesn't get mentioned a ton. Now, when Don, Don Baylor, when he retired, he got hit by pitches more than any player ever and Craig Biggio since passed that record but Don Baylor got hit like 267 times or something like that and he never one time showed pain he never rubbed the hit didn't do shit Don Baylor said when he got to the plate his first goal was to get a hit and his second goal was to get hit he would get on top of that plate and it was his way of establishing dominance you know, because he knew he was going to go there and a pitcher was going to try to intimidate him and pitch inside. So Don Baylor would get close to the plate as a sort of like, fuck you. Like, you think you're going to intimidate me? 
No, you're not. And if you hit me, I'm not even going to rub it. It doesn't hurt. Like pain to me doesn't exist. So I'm either going to get a hit off of you or you can hit me like it doesn't matter. But if you're going to give me something to throw, like let's make it happen. But he did, listen, Don Baylor did rub it one time, right? So one time he showed pain after he got hit. It was because Nolan Ryan throwing straight gas like he always does hit Don Baylor in the wrist. And so that hurt. And so Don Baylor was like, shit, man, like this sucks. So he took down the first base, but you could tell it hurt. And this is when Don was on the Baltimore Orioles. Now, I don't know what kind of shit this is, but like old school baseball players would do the craziest stuff to get better, right? Like Sandy Koufax would rub some stuff on his elbow that had like chili powder in it that would burn really bad. And then his arm would go numb so he wouldn't feel the pain. And... What did um, Satchel Paige used to get like from some Indian doctor, some Native American doctor? He would get like this concoction that had snake venom in it and shit like that and put it on his joints. Well, <laughs> so that's how the old school method did, right? Like my dad, he, he needed his tonsils removed when he was like 10, but he didn't go to the doctor and he didn't tell his parents. Instead, he coughed up blood for like three straight weeks and they dissolved in his mouth. I'm not making that shit up. That really happened, right? So like old school people just did things different. And so after the game, Don Baylor goes to the Orioles trainer and he goes, listen, can you, fr-? he goes, my, my wrist is hurt. I'm injured now. So he had the Orioles trainer freeze his injury and it stayed numb for a solid year. Now, I don't know how the fuck that happens, but he froze the injury, freeze it like one that can't be safe. And, you know, he might have needed some sort of medical attention because if you take a fastball from Nolan Ryan to the wrist, something's broken. Something is broken. And Don Baylor could have easily been like, yeah, I got to take days off. I got to get this thing fixed. Well, the answer is fuck no. Don Baylor said, freeze the son of a bitch, and I'm going to keep playing. And then the Orioles trainer was probably like, well, you're not going to feel it for a year. It's going to be numb. And Don was like, I don't care. Numb it. And he kept playing, you know. And it was when Don Baylor died, Frank Robinson and Bobby Gritch spoke at his funeral. And Bobby Gritch said this. I don't know if he said this at the funeral. But Bobby Gritch said that something along the lines of Don Baylor always played hurt. He never let up and just always kept going. And when I read that about a guy like Don Baylor, who had it, he was had an MVP season, I think, in 74. I think so. And that was the year the Angels made their first postseason. Because he signed, he left Baltimore. He was, I think Don Baylor was one of, might have been in the first free agent class ever in baseball. And when that happened, Don, Gene Autry, the the Western Cowboys singer, he owned the California Angels. So he signed uh, Don Baylor and he also signed Bobby Gritch, got both of those guys away from Baltimore. And I mean, just like, you know, a tough dude or whatever. And so when you think about, Don Baylor it's like you know I the H I was at I only knew Don Baylor as the coach of the Rockies I'd never thought about Don Baylor as a player even when I was watching sports center with my dad Don Baylor wasn't playing right and if he was I don't fucking remember it so because his first coaching job was in 93 with the Rockies but his last baseball season 
Um, let me see. Don Baylor was on the Red Sox in 86. From there, I think he spent his last season in his career in Oakland. So his last year was probably 88. So when I was five years old. So like I didn't know him at anything like that. But when I read stories about a guy like Don Baylor who will get in the batter's box and he would look at his time in the batter's box like he was going to war. You know, he he knew the pitcher was going to try to scare him, try to brush him back off the plate. That's what you do if you're a pitcher. If you're going to be a good pitcher, you got to pitch inside and you need to pitch inside well. And that will back the guy off the plate and sort of scare him a little bit. Well, Don Baylor was like the t-shirt, buddy. He didn't have any fear. No fear, my man. And he didn't feel any pain. And if he did, he would never let you know because, like Bobby Gritch said, he just never let up. That's just how it was. And so what I read about a guy like Don Baylor, who I know minimal about, and I can look at his baseball reference and say, yeah, he was a pretty good player, right? He had an MVP season. He won a World Series in 87 with the Minnesota Twins. And then I think in 88 might have been his last year with the Oakland Athletics and then didn't come back after that. And I read about him and, you know, sort of what he did and that how he played the game. And, you know, that's why I love the game of baseball, because of guys like Don Baylor who will go out there and in the hot ass sun in July, take a hit. Right. Like playing baseball, July, August, like they, they don't call it the dog days of the summer for nothing. Like it's fucking hot out there and it's miserable. And it's not like you're out there in shorts, no T-shirt and there's a, like a body of water you can get into like they're. They're a full uniform, pants, jersey. It's hot, and it ain't comfortable. But then on top of that, Don Baylor still, after all those games, he's going to get close to that plate to tell the pitcher, you're not going to intimidate me, and you're not backing me off. You want to hit me? Hit me. You got the guts to throw inside? Do it. And that's how he played the game, and that's it's guys like Don Baylor, like why I love the game of baseball so much. Like that grittiness, right? It Like, the ability to work hard, continue to work hard when it's not comfortable and push your body to that point of being uncomfortable, but still going through with it and giving it your all. That's why I love baseball so much. That's what I saw in my dad when he taught me the game of baseball. And those are the values that I take now when, you know, I do things for my daughter. She was up last night from 2 to 4, and she wouldn't go to sleep. And I'm tired. I'm exhausted. My body still aches from the whole weekend of softball and baseball. And I go in there, man, and I, I take pride in doing that stuff. And I'm not going to lie. Last night, I was like, fuck, I don't want to do this. Like, I really don't. But then, you know, I'll think of, you know, my dad, you know, putting in hard work. And I got a baseball podcast, so I'd be crazy to say, you know, I didn't think of Don Baylor, and he wasn't. A motivating factor in my life you know he died in 2017 but you know when you have a baseball podcast you learn about a lot of different people and your favorite players change you know and what a guy like Don Baylor did and how he played the game you know it's that's how my dad does it to this day and that's how I want to do it for my family you know if my wife you know needs stuff done around the house if she's got a plan for something you know like I've got to be better at you know working hard for her too because she bust her ass and, you know, our significant others sometimes will ask us to do stuff and we're like, that's dumb, you know. But my dad told me one time, he goes, sometimes you have to do things that you don't want to do. And you do it for the people around you that you care about. And that's how that's what Don Baylor was as a player. You know, a lot of teams when he left California, you know, a lot of teams wanted him not because of his bat, because after his MVP season, he sort of dropped off a lot. But they wanted him for who he was in the clubhouse. So the Oakland A's got him. 
the Minnesota Twins got him. And what's really nice in 87 is he had a game-tying homer, I think, in game uh, sometime during the World Series. He hit a key two-run homer, and I believe Don Baylor did. So he always found ways to contribute. But people weren't getting him, you know, after his prime with the Angels. You know, teams weren't getting him for his numbers and his bat because at some point he was, I think during his time with the Angels, he had to go straight to being a DH. And But a lot of it was just who he was as a person and what he brought to the clubhouse. So if you don't know much about Don Baylor, do your Google search, do some digging or whatever. But you're talking a hell of a ball player, a hell of a guy. And if anybody played with Don Baylor, they loved him, you know. And so when I read stories like that, I'm like, listen, I don't know if Barry Bonds is my favorite baseball player anymore. Like, I got a guy like Don Baylor, and I'm like, damn, like, Don Baylor might be my favorite baseball player. Or like Dick Allen. You know, I've talked about Dick Allen on this podcast and who he was as a man and a ball player. And I'm like, damn, that's awesome. Or like Charlie Huff. Like, Charlie Huff threw knuckleballs until he was like 48 years old. Like, that's awesome. Or Phil Negro or the Negro brothers, like in general, like Phil and Joe. Like, their story of like, you know, their old man being a coal miner and playing in a coal mining league and teaching them the knuckleball in the backyard. And then Phil, you know, winning his 300th game. And, you know, so during Phil Negro's entire game where he threw his 300th win. So let me think about this. Phil Necro got his 300th win as a New York Yankee. I don't remember the team he was pitching against, but it could have been the Mariners. I don't know. So what happened was Phil Necro needed that 300th win, and he was just like, he ended up pitching a complete game, like two-hitter, I think. But going into the game, he's like, you know, I'm just not going to throw any knuckleballs like, and just see what happens, right? But then he gets all the way through the game, and he's eight and two-thirds innings, two hits, and he's pitching a shutout. So he ends up throwing a complete game shutout, right? And the last pitch he throws, he's got two strikes on a guy. And he said, you know, I'm going to throw the knuckleball. I haven't thrown a knuckleball all game, but I'm going to throw this knuckleball because it's the pitch my dad taught me. And because that meant a lot to Phil, you know, because his dad was a hardworking coal miner who played ball in a coal mine league and hurt his arm. So he couldn't throw his fastball anymore in the coal mining league, but a coal miner coworker of his taught him this knuckleball. And then, you know, Phil and Joe's dad taught them the knuckleball in the backyard, right? So this pitch that Phil Necro's dad learned in the coal mines is what built Phil Necro's career as the best knuckleballer of all time. So this entire game, eight and two-thirds innings, two strikes on the last batter, one more strike, he wins his 300th game, and he goes, I'm going to throw a knuckleball. I haven't thrown one all game, and I'm going to do it. And he threw that knuckleball and struck out the last guy, right? And when I read something like that, when Phil Negro won his 300th game and him and his brother Joe became the winningest pitchers brother combo of all time, every time Phil and Joe Negro would do something big, Phil would always say, this isn't a Phil Negro record. This isn't Phil Negro winning his 300th game. This is a Negro family record. And you read about a guy like that who, in the midst of like this ultimate stardom and this feat, this immortal feat of winning 300 games, he still has the wherewithal and the thought process to say, I'm going to throw this knuckleball because my dad taught it to me and it meant a lot. And then when he's interviewed post-game, he goes, this isn't Phil Negro winning 300 games. This is the Negro family getting its 300th win because without my brother Joe and my parents and my sister, I couldn't do any of this, you know? And a lot of what he had as well are like things that I value, you know, like Dick Allen 
when he got his first minor league assignment, Little Rock, Arkansas, he was the first black player on the team. And the team had town parades. They were picketing in a parade-like fashion that said, go home, bro. Like, Dick Allen, we do not want you to play here. Like, we hate you, dude. And Dick Allen led the whole fucking league in, like, batting average and total bases. He dominated under this intense pressure. And that's what I'm saying, you know? So I'm discovering these people like Dick Allen and Don Baylor and Phil Negro who are, like, they're just hardworking guys and their family means so much to them. And that's where I'm at in my life now. So I don't know who my favorite ball player is, but... Those, you know, Don Baylor, Charlie Huff, Dick Allen, J.R. Richard, John Cruck, Phil Necro, John Candelaria. Like, those are some of my favorite ballplayers right now. But listen, one ballplayer that I've read about recently that I didn't know much about, Dan Quisenberry. Like, when I knew of Dan Quisenberry, so I remember having a 1990 Topps card of Dan Quisenberry, and he was a Cardinal. And he had a cool name, right? Like Quisenberry. Like what a weird name. Like that sounds like someone you would encounter while playing The Legend of Zelda on Nintendo. Like what's this Quisenberry, right? And so I didn't know much about him. But what happened was it was uh, maybe about a year ago I was watching the 85 ALCS, which was the Blue Jays and the Royals. And that was when the Royals won that ALCS and they went and they beat the Cardinals in the World Series. And I was always a fan of Dave Steeb, so I was like, well, I'm going to watch this series because I know Dave Steeb pitches in it, right? I know the, uh, the Blue Jays lose or whatever, but I don't care. I just enjoy good baseball. And plus, those Blue Jays teams had a lot of players that I really like. You know, Ernie Witt, who was a catcher for those old Blue Jays teams. Ernie Witt, damn good gritty guy. And then Damaso Garcia, who was a second baseman for him. And then in 85, I think Tony Fernandez was a rookie. And I think also... In the on the bench, like Cecil Fielder and Fred McGriff may have been in the system still for the Blue Jays. And then who else am I missing? I don't know, but I know Ernie Witt and Damaso Garcia and then Dave Steve. And Devon White might have been in the mix too. But actually, you know, in 85, Devon White was in the California Angels system. So he didn't get to the Blue Jays until like the World Series years of 92. But Ernie Witt and Damaso Garcia, Dave Steve. I mean, I think they also, I think the Blue Jays also had the guy who, what was the guy's name that got traded for John Smoltz that the Detroit Tigers needed? Um, You're probably saying the name now while you're listening to this, but yeah, it was, so John Smoltz was in the Tiger system and he got traded to the Braves because the Tigers needed a, a good pitcher for the playoffs and they had whoever that pitcher was. So I don't remember. So if you're saying it, I don't remember. Um, and so, I don't know where I was going with that or whatever, but, oh yeah, so I was watching the uh, 85 ALCS, and all of a sudden Dan Quisenberry comes in, I'm like, oh, I know Dan Quisenberry, but I didn't really know Dan Quisenberry or anything about him, he's got this just low submarine delivery, you know, like, this type of submarine delivery when you're playing RBI baseball on Sega with your buddies, and you bring in the submariner, and your buddy can't hit him, and he's like, what the hell is this, you know, ha! <laughs> So, like, that type of submarine. And I was like, dude, who would Dan Quisenberry? Like, he looks badass. Like, he's got this, like, submarine delivery. He's got this dope mustache. And he's, like, apparently the best reliever in baseball. Like, Dan Quisenberry, for four years in a row, was voted top three in Cy Young voting. Two of those years in a row, he was top two in Cy Young voting. And he was a relief pitcher. So, I'm like, this guy had to be dominant, right? But you watch him throw. He doesn't throw hard. He doesn't throw hard at all. He's not like Mitch Williams 
or you know a lot of closers that you see today he's not like he's not Mitch Williams and he's not Goose Gossage right so if you're comparing him to like old school relievers like he's not those guys he's a sidearm guy that throws like 80 something and I'm like who the hell like what is up with this right and but I didn't think much of it and then during like my all-star game binges it was the I don't remember which All-Star game I was watching. It may have been the 80 or the 81 All-Star game, I think. And Dan Quisenberry came in to close it. And the last one of the last batters he faced was Leon Durham of the Cubs. And Dan Quisenberry strikes him out on three pitches. So he throws like a sidearm sinking fastball, which was a dominant pitch for Dan Quisenberry. Then his second pitch is like a it's a curveball. It's a submarine curveball. So he throws a submarine sinker, which drops off the table. And a submarine curveball. But his third pitch was a submarine knuckleball. And I had never seen anything like it in my life. It's on my Instagram. And so you'll be able to tell. But it's like from the 80 or like the 82 or 83 All-Star game. It's something in there. And he strikes out Leon Durham on a submarine knuckleball. The baddest baddest at one of the baddest ass pitches I've ever seen in my life so then at that point I'm like I gotta know what's up with Dan Quisenberry like so I go full in you know like you know when you're watching something on TV and then you like start you got to Wikipedia the person and go through the process like with any television show you're watching it's like I gotta research every cast member right well I do that with baseball players so I go all in on Dan Quisenberry dude he's got a really interesting story right Dan Quisenberry he wasn't Dan Quisenberry is one of the best relievers of all time. I know that's a bold statement to say, but listen, he, okay, hold on. Dan Quisenberry in his prime, he had all time years. So you, Dan Quisenberry is probably not an all time reliever, like an all time great because he didn't put up like, you know, the inning counts that a lot of guys have to do to get into the hall of fame. Right. So Dan Quisenberry is a guy that had a really good window. And in that window, he outperformed a lot of relievers that are in the Hall of Fame. Now, like Bruce Suter's in the Hall of Fame right now, but Dan Quisenberry was a better reliever than Bruce Suter. But Bruce Suter's in the Hall because he had 300 saves. Dan Quisenberry only ended up getting like 260-something saves. But Dan Quisenberry was the first guy to get 40 or more saves three seasons in a row, and that was a record at the time. But one of those years... Dan Quisenberry got 45 saves in a season, and 35 of those saves were more than one-inning saves. And I think that number is still a record, right? So Dan Quisenberry doesn't have 300 saves. He didn't get into the Hall of Fame because he didn't have that milestone number. But a lot of that was because he was always getting multi-inning saves, which means he needed to have a little more rest. But he was the king of the multi-inning save, right? And then he also... You know, had the four straight seasons where he was top three in Cy Young, two straight seasons, top two in Cy Young. He was elite, elite. One of the years he finished second in Cy Young voting, he got beat by Lamar Hoyt, I'm pretty sure. And he was a a much more deserving pitcher of that Cy Young, you know. And his ERA plus number, which is the park adjusted number that allows you to compare earned run average numbers of players from different eras. He's got a better ERA plus than a lot of great relievers. You know, you're talking better than, I've got the number in front of me. Hold on one second. I'm going to bring up my Evernote and I'll actually tell you this because I'm about to get into some serious stats. But yeah, the ERA plus is a park adjusted ERA number that lets you compare different pitchers from different eras. And 
that pitched in different ballparks. So it's like a level playing field to compare pitchers with, with like their ERA. Now listen to this, this ERA plus number. Dan Quisenberry, if you go a minimum of 1,000 innings pitched, Dan Quisenberry is ninth all time in ERA plus, the ninth best pitcher of all time right now. I did this the other day on like Stathead. His ERA plus, now here are some comparable guys to Dan Quisenberry as far as innings pitched that Dan Quisenberry had a better ERA plus than. He was better than Trevor Hoffman, Bruce Suter, Sparky Lyle, Kent Takuve, who taught him the submarine pitch, who was part of the 1979 We Are Family World Champions. Uh, Goose Gossage, who may have won a Cy Young, I'm not too sure, but Goose Gossage is a Hall of Famer. Babe Ruth, who threw about 1,200 career innings, who was noted as being a great pitcher. Well, Dan Quisenberry had a better ERA plus than Babe Ruth. He had a better ERA plus than Raleigh Fingers, who won a Cy Young and an MVP in the same season. Willie Hernandez, who also won an MVP and a Cy Young in the same season with the Detroit Tigers. And he has a better ERA plus than Lee Smith, who just got in the Hall of Fame. So those numbers, again, ERA plus, who Dan Quisenberry has higher numbers than Trevor Hoffman. He's up there as one of the all-time great relievers. Bruce Suter, who's in the Hall of Fame. So both of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. Sparky Lyle did win a Cy Young. Kento Kuve, key World Series piece. Goose Gossage, I can't remember if he won a Cy Young or not, but fucking Goose Gossage, dude. He's a great reliever. One of the all-time fireman multi-inning dudes. And Babe Ruth, Raleigh Fingers, Willie Hernandez, Lee Smith. Like, it's crazy. Out of all your greatest relievers of all time, only Mariona Rivera gave up fewer home runs. Listen, Dan Quisenberry gave up fewer home runs per nine inning than Nolan Ryan. Fewer home runs per nine than Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan is the hardest pitcher to hit all time in baseball. Average against Nolan Ryan's the hardest pitcher to hit. And that's who Dan Quisenberry was. But listen to this. Out of high school in college, Dan Quisenberry went unsigned. Dan Quisenberry also, so he went unsigned, undrafted, and he was unscouted. Nobody. Not one scout looked at Dan Quisenberry because he didn't have anything, right? All Dan Quisenberry was throwing in college was a submarine sinking fastball that sometimes went 80 miles an hour and it sometimes went less than 80 miles an hour. Like, that's all he had, right? And so what happened was he gets out of high school and he he doesn't get drafted, right? Nothing happens. No one's ever looking at him. But his college coach knew a guy named Rosie who was a scout for the Kansas City Royals. And so he calls Rosie, and it's like, listen, I got a guy that I think you should look at because Rosie had once scouted Dan's older brother, Mike Quisenberry. So Dan's college coach calls Rosie, and it's like, listen, I got a guy you want to look at. You looked at his brother before, and he's got good stuff. He's got a really good sinking fastball. And so Rosie doesn't even look at him. So Rosie tells... Dan's coach, he goes, well, I got a spot open in Waterloo, which is single A for the Royals. And so he tells the high school, he tells uh, Dan's college coach, Rosie does. Rosie says, if your guy can be here in an hour, I'll sign him because <laughs> I need somebody now. If he can be here in an hour, let's do it. So Dan, so no one's seen Dan Quisenberry pitch at this point. All that happened was the coach called Rosie and Rosie said, well, hell, I need a spot. Can he be here in an hour? So Dan Quisenberry gets in his gremlin, which of course Dan Quisenberry drives a gremlin. So he gets in the gremlin, 
drives as fast as he can. Like you're talking like need for speed type McLaren stuff in the Gremlin. Drives to Rosie's house, gets there within an hour. Rosie signs him for 500, I shit you not, 500 bucks, a Kansas City Royals button, I guess maybe to put on his hat, and a bag of chew. I shit you not, that's literally what he signed for. 500 bucks, a button, and a can of chew. Or not a can of chew, a bag of chew, because that's how it was. I imagine it was Redman, maybe Beach Nut, Levi Garrett. I don't really know, right? So he gets the job. And he he goes he goes to Waterloo right now. They didn't nobody expected much out of Dan Quisenberry because again at this time all he threw was a fastball that had some sink on it, and it was eighty miles an hour tops right so seventy five to eighty so you know you're driving on the interstate faster than his fastball is going so it's like he gets to Waterloo and something weird happens he gets guys out. With this sinking fastball, he just does work. So in 1975, he's in Waterloo, pitches 44 innings to a 2.45 ERA, walks like six guys in 44 innings, super effective. And so the season's over, and the Royals are like, well, what the hell's going on? So they assume it's just a fluke. So they're like, well, hell, leave Quisenberry in single A because he doesn't have anything, right? He's They're going to get used to him. And they're going to hit the shit out of him. So the <laughs> next year in Waterloo, which now this is in 1976, so his second year in single A, because they just don't believe what they're seeing, and they really don't pay him any mind. So sort of within his own system, he's not even really getting scouted. So he goes to Waterloo again in 76, throws 42 innings with a point a point six four earned run average. This is crazy. And on top of that, he walks, hold on, how many guys did he walk? He walks nine guys in 42 innings, so he's he's not walking anybody. He doesn't miss the plate. That was the thing about Quisenberry, right? You know Bill James, like that heavy-duty, like baseball scholar, statistician guy or whatever? Bill James said that nobody, no pitcher ever made fewer mistakes than Dan Quisenberry. He just didn't miss the plate. And that sinking fastball, tried and true, just got guys out. So in 77, right, they're like, well, we'll send him to double A then. So he gets to double A in Jacksonville in 77, 2.19 ERA, 74 innings. The same thing happens. They assume it's a fluke. They're like, this just can't be possible. So in 78, they send him to double A again, 2.39 ERA and 64 innings. It's like, what? Like, he's just pitching out, lights out, right? So how it goes, so then at that point, this is what's happened. He's been in single A two years, double A two years, and killed it. So finally in 79, like, it keeps going. He goes to triple A, throws only 35 innings to a 360 ERA, and that's because the Kansas City Royals had some guy who, like, broke his finger or something like that. And so they were pretty much like, oh, we need a, like, we need somebody. So Dan Quisenberry got called up in 79 because some guy broke his finger. I think Whitey Herzog, I think in 79 was Whitey Herzog's last season managing the Royals because then he went to the Royals or he went to the Cardinals after the Royals, right? So it's like some dude named Jerry, right, gets hurt. 
and he broke his finger. So Whitey Herzog calls Quisenberry up because like, man, this guy's been doing good. So like, maybe we don't expect anything, but like, let's just see what happens. Now at this time, he's just sinking fastball. So in his debut, he comes in against like the White Sox, two on, one out, immediately gets a double play. And that's one of the things that Dan Quisenberry was known for is double plays. He's got in baseball history the highest double play ground ball rate of any pitcher, right? So what Quisenberry was able to do, right? Not high strikeout numbers, and he just never walked anybody. Now his whip was sort of high because he was he was a little easier to get a hit off of, but a lot of that stuff was soft contact because Quisenberry was not giving up home runs, right? So one of the main comparisons to Dan Quisenberry is Bruce Suter. Well, Bruce Suter had a lower average against, you know, was a little bit harder to get a hit off of than Quisenberry was, but Suter walked guys, right? Quisenberry didn't walk anybody. So, yeah, you could get a hit off of him because he was always thrown around the plate, but if you hit it, it was probably going to be a grounder. It for sure wasn't going out of the park. And then from that point on, uh, Quisenberry, he did not go back to the minor leagues. Now, while he was in, I think, after his first season, right? So when Quisenberry was thrown in the minors, he was a side armor. He hadn't adopted the full submarine stuff yet. But sometime, I think in 79 or 80, it was Kent Tecuve. That was the guy. That's the submarine guy for the 79 World Series champion Pirates. We are family. He taught him to go full submarine. And that was about the time that, I guess, Quisenberry had started to learn you know, some more stuff or whatever like that. Because like I said earlier, so Quisenberry had a really good curveball, had the sinking fastball, and had the submarine knuckleball, which was completely nuts. Now, a few things about Dan Quisenberry that are just mind-boggling. So he threw over a 1,000 innings. I think the number in his career was 1,024 or 1,048. And in all of those innings, he only walked 92 batters, 92 unintentional walks. So he had intentional walks in there, but we're not really counting those because those are coming from the manager. So in over a thousand innings pitched, here, let me just give you the number real quick. Dan Quisenberry pitched 1,043 innings and unintentionally walked 92 guys. That's the number, 92. And check this out though. He only threw four wild pitches in that span in his entire MLB career. Four wild pitches. Could you imagine a reliever only throwing four wild pitches? His prime from 81 to 87, the guy threw one single wild pitch, and it was in mop-up duty. They were, like, blowing out, I don't know who the Royals were beating the crap out of, and he threw one wild pitch that didn't even affect the game in a six-year span completely nuts on Quisenberry. But yeah, his big prime was 81 to 87. And these were big seasons. He went, what the hell is this? In 1981, he only threw 62 innings. And I'm not sure why. I don't know if he had some sort of injury. Oh, shit. 81 was the strike season, right? So in 1980, he was fifth in Cy Young voting. Now, 81 was the strike shortened season. So he didn't place in Cy Young voting. I imagine a lot of relievers didn't because they weren't racking up a lot of innings. Quisenberry only threw 62 innings. So if you if you sort of forget about 81 because he didn't have the chance to, in 1980, 82, 83, 84, 85, that's five full seasons in a row. He placed at least top five in Cy Young voting, but he was only fifth once. The other times he was third, second, second, third. And his innings pitched in that span, again, he's a reliever, 
128, 136, 139, 129, 129 innings. He was pitching big innings, led the save. And in all of those years, you know, excluding 81, so 80 through 85, but excluding 81, he led the league in saves. And he was also getting more multi-inning saves than anybody, right? So, you know, the the Royals won that World Series in 85, and they went to the World Series in 80 and lost to the Phillies, I guess. That was a Greg Luzinski, Mike Schmidt. That's a damn good team right there, Larry Boa. So, Bake McBride, yeah, buddy. And it was just, those are huge numbers. He was leading the league in saves, leading the league probably in multi-inning saves. ERA plus numbers, 209, 210, 174, just big-ass numbers, man. And it was just, you know, the wild thing about Quisenberry is he just, like, he just wasn't supposed to be anything. He wasn't drafted. He wasn't scouted. He just was true to himself because, he just, you know, he didn't do what everybody else did. And a lot of it, yeah, you know, he, he had good stuff. The sinking, just the way he threw it, the sinking fastball was awesome. And I'm telling you, the submarine knuckleball is one of the craziest pitches ever. But the thing about Dan Quisenberry is he was just a sweetheart of a guy. He was, I mean, he was incredibly nice. Later on in his career, after he retired, he wrote poems and he would always go to like, I guess these live poem readings or something like that. And he would read his stuff. But afterwards, he was always so interested in other people's stuff, which is wild because this is a guy that was a major league baseball player who performed at the highest level and won a World Series. And it's like he really just cared about other people. But also, he was a very quirky guy. You know, he was your typical quirky reliever, sort of like Turk Wendell. If you're familiar with Turk Wendell, he was a reliever. He pitched for the Cubs, and he, in between innings, he would eat black licorice and brush his teeth and just all this crazy shit. But, like, during one of the All-Star games that I was watching, I think it was the American League had broke off, like, 10 or 12 wins in a row. You know, something stupid. Or not the American League. The National League was winning a ton in a row. And they were asking all the American League players, they were like, why do you think the National League's winning so much? And Dan Quisenberry answered, cottage cheese. <laughs> and, like, they're all like, what the hell? Like, yeah, Dan Quisenberry's a wild dude, but he was just a genuinely happy guy, right? So, listen to this. So, him, Dan Quisenberry, and Bill James, I guess, used to be on a radio show together. Or Dan would be a frequent guest on the radio when Bill James had a radio show. And this caller called in one time to the radio show and said when he was a kid, this caller that called in and was talking to Bill James, he said that when he was 10 years old, he saw Dan Quisenberry in a grocery store and went up and talked to him to say hi. And Dan Quisenberry, this professional baseball player who's probably just, you know, shopping for pizza rolls and chocolate milk or whatever he eats, right? I mean, those are the things that I eat. He's just talking to this kid, and this kid's like, oh, my God, like, that's Dan Quisenberry. So he's talking to him and stuff, and I guess they talk for a couple minutes or something, and all of a sudden, Dan Quisenberry, in the middle of the grocery store, in the middle of his day, asked this kid, he's like, dude, you got your glove on you? And you know when you're a kid, you always have your baseball glove on you. Like, my baseball glove was always with me at all times, you know, like baseball glove, butterfly knife, Zippo lighter, right? Those were the three things I had to have. And so Dan's like, hey, man, do you have your glove on you? And the kid's like, hell yeah, man, I got it in the car. And they went out in the parking lot of the grocery store and played catch. They were just out there playing catch in the parking lot. This kid goes up to one of his favorite ball players and says hi. And the ball player's like, do you want to go out and play catch? And it was just like, 
that's who Dan Quisenberry was, man. He loved baseball. He loved life. And I think a lot of his success, yeah, was in the stuff that he threw because he was a really good pitcher. But so much of baseball, I think, is your personality and your attitude and sort of who you are as a person. You know, I've always thought that I thought about it today, actually, like Barry Bonds, like I said earlier, was sort of an asshole. Well, not sort of. He definitely was. And I always wondered, like, if a guy like Barry Bonds just, you know, carried himself, like, with the happiness that a dude like Dan Quisenberry did, like, he probably would have had a better career. Like, I think so much of your, you know, success in pro sports has a lot to do just with your attitude. You know what I mean? And it's like Dan Quisenberry just loved people and loved the game, and he was just incredibly nice and incredibly giving, and that's just who he was, you know? And you think of a guy like Barry Bonds, and it's like, you know, he had his postseason success, you know, like wasn't there. Like it was non-existent outside of, I guess, like the O2 season when he was like heavily hopped up on juice. And, you know, you got to wonder, like, you know, did that have anything to do with it? Right. Like, did he always think like he like had something to prove and just always wanted to be an asshole and be better than everybody? And it sort of just bit him in the butt because I feel like a lot of times when you just work with love and you're a kind person and then you have a lot of skill to back it up, like good things will happen to a guy. And that's, that's really just who Dan Quisenberry was, you know, just a sweet dude. And you can sort of tell that like in his poems too, you know, he, I don't remember what his book of poems is called here. Let me look it up real quick because I had, I did a Dan Quisenberry post on my um, uh, Instagram the other day. And a lot of people were like, you got to read his, uh, hold on. Dan Quisenberry, A lot of people were like, hey, man, you got to read his poetry or whatever because it's really good stuff. Poet. Hold on. I'm trying to get the name of that book. On Days Like This. That is the title of Dan Quisenberry's book of poems. And apparently it is a phenomenal read. Everybody on my Instagram was like, listen, you got to check this out. And one of the poems, listen, I'm going to read this poem. So it's sort of gushy. And I've cussed a lot, so this poem sort of makes me feel guilty or whatever. But you can just sort of like, you know, sort of sense like the love that I guess Dan Quisenberry had for life and the game. So one of Dan Quisenberry's poems was titled, What If? And here's how the poem reads. What if you decided you could feel good and do things you really liked and gave yourself freedom to make a mistake or two and said out loud, God really loves me a whole lot. Now, you don't really have to be a Christian or like a God dude to like that poem because you can tell there's just a lot of love in it. You know, it talks about, you know, doing things you want to do and have the freedom to make a mistake, you know, not worry about failing. And I think a lot of good baseball players, you know, who, you know, maybe don't conform to like what a lot of people do, you know, like Dan Quisenberry, you know, with the way he threw and, you know, not having the stuff, right? And it's like, you know, when he got to Kansas City in 1980, Jim Fry was the manager, and Jim Fry sizing up his team because Whitey Herzog had got canned the year before. And Jim Fry's talking to Dan Quisenberry, and he's like, let me see your curveball. And Dan Quisenberry's like, I don't have a curveball. Like, I only throw a sinking fastball. And Jim Fry apparently had this classic blow-up where he was just cussing and throwing a fit. He was like, what the hell is this, man? And it's always like Dan Quisenberry just stuck with, you know, what he had. And it was, and he felt good about it, you know? So when you read a poem like that, it's just all about like, you know, loving life, loving what you do. And hey, if you make a mistake or two, like it's okay, you know? And he mentions God really loves me, you know, to the end of his life, you know, uh, he, he had a lot of faith. And, you know, here's what sort of sums who Dan Quisenberry was. They, he had an interview like while he was sick because he had, I think had a brain tumor 
And the dude that inter- was interviewing him was like, listen, Dan, do you ever just sit back and say, like, why me? And Dan Quisenberry said, no, like, why not me? You know, I wouldn't want to have, I wouldn't wish this disease upon anybody else. So why not me? I've had a great life. I've won a World Series. I've had a great baseball. I've had a great life and a great baseball life. And it's totally okay. And that's just who he was, man. Like, a, like always a glass half full optimistic person. And I think that's a powerful thing, you know. And, you know, when you talk about having faith in yourself as a reliever or just in life in general, like, because if you're listening to this podcast, you're not a baseball player, buddy, and neither am I, right? Like, yeah, just because I played some adult league softball this weekend doesn't mean that I'm I'm anything, right? And so when I read stuff like this, and, you know, like I said earlier about, you know, how as I get older and I research more baseball players that were a little bit before my time through this podcast— I'm learning that my favorite baseball players, you know, aren't my favorites anymore. You know, no disrespect to him. I still like Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa and Ken Griffey Jr. and stuff like that. So it's not like I like them less. But there are a lot of guys I like more because, you know, when I read this Dan Quisenberry poem and, you know, I learn a little bit about his life, it's like, yeah, those are good things. If you're an athlete, you know, to have confidence in yourself and your abilities and not change when people say you should because you only throw a. 80 mile an hour sinking fastball tops. But, you know, me and you, you know, right now we're just living normal life. And we have jobs sometimes that sort of suck. And, you know, sometimes we're up late with our kids and, you know, trying to figure out how tomorrow's going to work out because we're so damn busy. And, you know, when you read a story like Dan Quisenberry or the other guys I mentioned earlier in this podcast, you're just like, dude, like, those are guys that. I could model my life after, you know, I'm not in my athletic days are long gone. Trust me, pal. I'm still sore from playing baseball this weekend. I don't know if I'll ever be the same person physically, but when I read stuff like this and I look at a player like Dan Quisenberry, it just makes me feel good about life. And that's something that I love. And that's what, you know, makes doing this podcast really good and taking the time to, you know, research baseball players that sort of get forgotten because they're not, you know, the big time, big number of Hall of Famers and things like that. And they're not out making news. And I think it's important, you know, to remember guys like Dan Quisenberry or Dick Allen or Phil Necro, you know, because these are guys that are gone. But I think it's important to keep telling their story because not only from an athletic perspective, but from a life perspective, you know, they uh, they lived a meaningful life and they can still influence us now in bigger ways than we ever imagined, which I think is pretty cool. All right, guys. Well, I think I'm going to wrap this show up. It's in an hour and 20 minutes. So if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. And I know I say that on every episode, but I really am thankful for everybody that listens to this show because this is just so fun to me. Like I truly, truly mean it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It just makes life so damn fun to talk nostalgic baseball with people and I feel like it just makes our current lives better, you know what I mean? And with me having a family, and I know there are other people out there in the same situation, but I feel like no matter like where your life's at, this stuff is just fun to talk and reminisce on because it just makes the current our current lives so much happier. And it just I feel like digging deep into this nostalgic stuff just sort of teaches us to like not let the current time slip because at some point these are going to be the good nostalgic times that we're going to say, damn, do you remember that time in 2020 when we were stuck in the house for a year and Quentin ate six boxes of Thin Mints in six days? (laughs) The Thin Mint Challenge. Now, listen, I realized that on the last episode I recorded that I 
said that I would like to get more guests on the show that are followers of the podcast. Now, I've got some direct messages, at least two that I've got to respond to, but probably a lot more in my direct messages on very on like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and stuff. But there are a lot of direct messages that I get on a daily basis, so it's hard for me to sift through those. So I'm going to figure out a different process for people to contact me and organize show guests that are followers of the podcast on Instagram and stuff like that because I just really want to talk to the people. I want to talk to everybody that follows this page and follows this podcast because like going through the comments on Instagram, like dude, the comments are so funny and so informational. You know, everybody's got their own baseball story when it comes to family and just good fun times. And those are the conversations that I like to have. So let for now, like, let's do this. Like if you're listening to this and you've already sent me a message about being a guest on the podcast and I haven't responded, if you could email me at greatestshowondirt at gmail.com, because I don't get a lot of emails and that would be way easier to go through. So if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast and you've messaged me before, I'll try to get to your message in my direct messages, but I just get so many of them on Instagram. It's hard and I'm probably going to miss a few. But if you've messaged me and I haven't responded, shoot me an email, greatestshowondirt at gmail.com. And if you haven't messaged me on Instagram, but you might want to be a guest, you can still email me on greatestshowondirt at gmail.com. And we can try to have some more fun on this show. So thank you for listening. Uh, my Instagram is greatestshowondirt. You could go there because there's a lot of fun stuff I post. And it's just a good time, not because of the stuff I post, but again, because of the people that comment on the things that I post. And dude, it's like I could just go through those comments all day because the stories are just so damn fun and everybody's got their own funny posts like I'll post like a picture of uh, like I don't know who like anybody like I'll post a picture of like Gorman Thomas or Pete Vukovic and like have a funny caption with it and the comments are way funnier than my captions and they're so damn good but then so many comments just have really good baseball stories so thank you for commenting and following along on the Instagram page because it's just so damn fun so it's a good time. It really is. And for me, I hope it's fun for you as well. But either way, I'm going to stop and just shut up and stop talking. Thank you for listening. And until next time, have a good week, guys. See ya.